Nau mai, haere mai, ki te whare e tū nei, ko tūranga, tēnā koe. He mihi nui ki ngā mana whenua o te rohe nei, ko ngai tu āhurere. Kia koutou, e te whānau, koe hui hui mai nei mō te kaupapa o tēnei ahiahi, tēnā koutou. E rere ana ngā mihi ki ngā kaikōrero, ngā kaituhi o tēnei mutunga wiki. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. That little bit at the top is a mihi to the whare, which is traditional in Te Ao Māori, and I have to say that the festival venues um, in Christchurch are so beautiful, and it's been such a privilege to be here with you. You're very lucky. Welcome to this session, Medical Misadventures, supported by Victoria University Press and Penguin Random House. My name's Emma Espiner, and I'm joined today by two of our most intimidating literary talents. <laughs> got Dr Eileen Merriman and Carl Schrucker. We're talking about their novels, The Silence of Snow and A Mistake, both of which reveal and explore the human cost of errors in medicine. We'll take questions at the end. Both of the books will be available at the bookstand afterwards, and Carl and Eileen will be there at the signing table after our session. Kia ora kōrua. Kia ora. Kia ora. Dr Merriman. Can I call you Eileen? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm at work. You might get weird responses. <laughs> it'll, it'll save us time. Yeah. But I have to ask because I was once told by a plastic surgeon that I should never call a consultant by their first name unless invited to. So kia ora. Kia ora. <laughs> <laughs> this is your second adult novel. Um, it deals with addiction and the mental health impact of a major clinical era. Um, and it's a beautiful love story. Why did you choose to tell this story? Um, I, I think I'd been wanting to write a story about junior doctors for a while, which is partly born out of my own experience. Um, and I'll tell you about my first day as a junior doctor quite soon. Um, but, but also I um, was really quite interested in addiction in junior doctors, or any doctors really. Um, when I was a junior, I had heard that another doctor working in a peripheral hospital was found collapsed in a corridor and he had taken fentanyl. And I just kind of thought, wow, I wonder how that came to be and how come he, he sort of did that and, and what kind of people are abusing drugs and I started doing some research and you'll be grateful to know that we're not all abusing drugs. I mean, it's still <laughs> relatively rare, um, but, but anaesthetists obviously do have easy access to drugs mm. and um, so I was quite interested in that. I was quite interested in, um, I guess, medicine is not an exact science um, and, you know, many people say it's an art and a science. Um, the human body is not a car. Things don't always go according to plan. Um, and when things go wrong, um, it's often not just one person's mistake. It's, it's a whole catalogue of errors because there's lots of checks and balances in mm. medicine, just like when you fly a plane, basically. Um, and so for something to go majorly wrong means it's not just one thing that went wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, I, I guess I also wanted people to see the world in which we worked, which is often a really strange world, and you can't always tell people a lot about it because of... Um, you don't want it to seem, you know, flippant. You don't want to be betraying patient confidences and things like that. So to fictionalise it made that an easier space to sort of tell that story. And, um, and, and I guess I'll just relay my first two weeks as a junior doctor at a peripheral hospital. I worked 12 to 16 hour days every day. I had no lunch break. Um, so the days when I wasn't on call were the 12 hour days and I had no registrar who's the step above the baby house surgeon and between the consultant and the house surgeon. So I didn't have one for the first two weeks. So I'd come in... Um, and I'd do as much as I could, and at 7.30 I'd been there 12 hours, and I'd just go, I can't do any more, and I'd go home again. But on my first day I came in, and I started to do the ward round by myself, not really knowing what the heck I was doing, 
And then I was called down to theatre to go and help the surgeon because there was no registrar to help him. So I went, oh, when am I going to see these patients? I went, oh, okay. So I went down to help him, and then the call came through that a light plane had crashed. So six people were brought in, injured. The pilot and co-pilot had awful, awful facial injuries, and they were anaesthetists, etc., were standing around arguing about tracheostomies and what they were going to do, because this was quite a small hospital. Um, someone gave me a piece of paper and said, just write down what's happening, and I was I don't know what's happening. <laughs> you know, so um, I can honestly say that was a, quite a mm. memorable first day. So, so that's quite a long answer to your question, but um, all of those kind of experiences mm. lead into this book. That doesn't fill me with confidence, starting as a junior doctor in January. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, at least you'll have a registrar. So. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. Um, and just to pick up on your um, comment about, you know, the body's not a machine, which yeah. is a nice segue into, into your book, Carl, because, you know, you use that... Um, that juxtaposition with the technology. And it was really interesting for me reading your novel because I first read it pre-COVID and then read it again last week. And um, that idea that, you know, the Swiss cheese model of of, of Mm. failure and the way that things go wrong um, is, you know, it was really prescient. (laughs) Yeah. um, No, I mean, it's exactly what you're talking about is this kind of old view of of safety is is of like um, this, you do root cause analysis and you what you find out that one thing or that one person or that one instrument or that machine, that is the cause of what happened. Mm. Mm. And um, that is the thing that we will destroy or eradicate Mm. or fire or Mm. um, punish in some way and then all will be well in the future. And um, I think, you know, that was kind of de rigueur and sort of safety circles for a long time and now people are are saying something which is a little bit more... um, positive actually and kind of restorative and that's that's the approach that it's called safety two in the jargon and that's the idea that well you know 99.9% of the time things go right actually Mm. and things are pretty good um and there are some caveats to that which we'll probably discuss later Mm, mm. but you know how do we how do we actually see what were the conditions that made things go right all this time and how do we foster and nurture those Mm. and um I just wanted to come back to, you know, you're, you're talking mm. about addiction with your, um, mm. with Rory, with one of your protagonists, and mm. um, he, there's a psychiatrist that comes into the story mm. too late, as it mm. turns out, mm. um, and it took so long for him to get that help, mm. um, but he talks about how the psychiatrist gave his trauma a name, mm. and he, you know, called it PTSD, mm. and it struck me that, you know, doctors are often terrible when mm. they're ill themselves. Yeah, absolutely, mm. and they don't recognise exactly what's happening to them. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, it was a textbook case, but he couldn't see it happening. No, he, yeah. he couldn't. And, and I, guess, um, I guess in medicine, as in, often in many high-powered professions, you've done so much to get there and to be seen as not coping is not... And, and sometimes it's, it's with the, within the person themselves. They're often perfectionists, so I'm not going to be seen as not being a coper. I can cope, I can cope, until they get to that point where one last thing breaks the straw. Mm. You know, it's the... Um, yeah, so, so I guess for him, no, he didn't really know what was happening. He felt stressed. He thought he could deal with it. Mm. didn't know that he, he just wasn't. And he wasn't looked after, was he, by the system? No. And, I mean, this is something yeah. that, that came up as well with your protagonist, and I want to talk about Elizabeth Taylor. Sure. Um, she's a surgeon in a male-dominated field mm. um, and a lesbian. Um, why did you tell the story through this character's eyes? Um, so I came at this story originally... Um, from the perspective I wanted to talk about um, failure and um, collapse, cascading failures, um, things going really, really irrevocably bad. So the story's structured. If you did it by word count, you'd see like 90% of the word count is devoted to the aftermath. Mm. Um, And 
and then I was doing all this work around um, you know, transparency in healthcare and like what, what do we know about how good our surgeons are or our doctors in various fields? Like how do we, do we know if they're any good? Or do we just blindly go into the big room, big building and sort of say, you know, do what you will to me. I will surrender to you. Um, and, um, and then I thought, okay, so I, I want to write a novel. I have two days a week. I've got about six hours a day to do this. So it's going to be quite short. You know, there'll be... I have limitations. And so I started thinking, okay, I want to do a surgeon. And I knew some stuff about cardiac surgery and how they were measuring those outcomes. So it's going to be a male cardiac surgeon. So, so this was the point. Okay, I start building this character. What does my male cardiac surgeon do? And I had this story in my head about a, a surgeon friend of mine who was um, playing hacky sack. And he was on the phone playing hacky sack, um, negotiating an organ donation of a patient that had just died. It was very vivid image for me. Then I thought, what does this male surgeon do? He lives in Wellington. He goes mountain biking. He goes to Margaret. Then I thought, oh, 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 no, no. This is just awful and so dead and dull. And the whole thing stopped because I had all this technical stuff I wanted to do. I had an emotional thrust, but I had no person. And then um, just one day it just just came to me. I saw a pixelated image of Elizabeth Taylor, and I just thought... um, Okay, she's a woman. She is that much further to fall. She's clawed that much harder to get where she is. She has that much further to fall. There's a very interesting dynamic that's going to go on with me doing writing that character. And, you know, I can, there's a bigger risk of failure for me. Just the stakes went up and I got really nervous and excited and it seemed like... It sounds very healthy. <laughs> <laughs> That's not. Some of these wrinkles. Um, and Eileen, you've said before in, in an interview that you related to this protagonist as a female specialist. Yeah. Yeah, I guess um, because um, things have come a long way in medicine, luckily, but I still think females do have to work harder, um, and especially when you end up being in positions in a male-dominated specialty um, or you're in the meeting with all the males. And um, so, yeah, I, I got the feeling that Elizabeth Taylor was quite a real character. I, I really enjoyed reading about her. And, yes, she's quite abrasive, but I think um, in the surgical world she's had to be like that. She's got had to be basically pretty tough to get to where she is. So, um, yeah. Your your surgical registrar is not that nice either. My surgical in, no in no that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's funny, isn't it? I, I did. I had nice surgical registrars, to be honest. When I was um, when, when they finally turned up <laughs> in Nelson, but no, there, there can be quite a culture. Um, definitely, when I was training, where um, sometimes the junior the juniors to them were kind of almost like bugs, really. Like you, were, well, you know, you were dogs, um, and, and you were doing their work for them, and they'd go off and do do their theatre and things like that. So. Um, yeah, and, and you just had to get on and do it, basically. And you had to learn how to put in that IV. No one else was going to come around and do it for you. So um, or if you could call on your mates, then that was really good. Mm. But um, otherwise, no, you just had to get on and do it. So, yeah. Did you talk to surgeons? Yeah, I mean, I was spending a lot of time around surgeons because of my work, which, as you put well, is medical adjacent. <laughs> um, so I was, I was in a lot of these conferences with, with surgeons and with doctors and watching them, you know, with, as an outsider with fascination because um, I think you guys, you spend so much time embedded in your hierarchy and in your world that um, it can be, it might be strange for you to, to sort of understand how little we know 
out in the world mm. and how, how impenetrable healthcare is to... Mm. And in the weird dynamics that New Zealand have, the fact that we have to pay for our GP, um, that whole... That's, that's completely arbitrary. That's down to one Shetland Islander named James Jameson <laughs> who did a roadshow around New Zealand in 1938 demanding freedom for doctors to, you know, and no subsidies for the wealthy and all this kind of um, energy that he put into it and Savage to get the act passed. It was just like, oh, for Christ's sake, okay. <laughs> Let's split it down the middle so we have a copay. We have all the implications of that for equity, for access, and, and then we have this distance that we feel from our family doctor and many of our whānau and our families and our traditions of going to a doctor are weird. It's skewed mm. by this. Mm. And then there's a further weird distance to the hospital. Mm. And it's all so impenetrable and strange. Um, and, and for me to be sitting next to these surgeons who, you know, were just sort of regular people and, and they had their own weird culture and their own weird hierarchies and, and I would see them change behaviour depending on who they were facing and mm. talking to. Mm. And, and I was just sitting there like, let me watch you for... Yeah, there's a lot yep. to unpack. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's it's, my it's God. probably like if you go out and hang out with a sports team and they've all got their own language and everything. So, and, and then because you've been doing that for years and years and years and years and you've got all your terminologies, then, yeah, you, you would lose the average person if they came along and sat in on that, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And, and every now and then you'll start talking to patients and they'll go, but what does that mean? And I remember in Christchurch a patient being told they had a shadow or, or a growth in the liver and so we, we thought that was bad and... It didn't transpire to a week later that they didn't realise we meant cancer. So, so now I'm very careful to say to my patients, you have a tumour. No, we'd use the word tumour. They didn't know that was cancer. You have a tumour. That means cancer. And, mm. I, and I always try and translate it into the next level now. There's a point at which in, in a mistake where um, the family of, um, you know, this young woman that's, that's died as a result of a mistake um, goes to the media and tells the story. And all the clinicians are gathering around the surgeon and saying, oh, you know, it's not true, it didn't happen that way, you know, you, you did everything right kind of thing. Um, but she says, you know, but this is, this is his story, this is their truth, you know, and it, was, it sound, felt to me like a, you know, validation that, you know, patients, <laughs> people have their experience and that, that you need to validate that it's not just us deciding what goes on. Yeah, I mean... It, it, this is the weird thing about uh, reporting on, you know, this transparency thing I keep coming back to because it's a big part of my brain and around this book, is this reporting on what happens at the end um, of, of a surgery or of a procedure. Um, the actual person who decides is the patient, right? Mm. You know, um, and yet I can feel in your brains you're going... Um, however, <laughs> because if you do exactly the right thing, there's a story in, in the, um, this UK cardiac surgeon where he talks about um, these two surgeons, and one's called Hodad is his nickname, Hands of Death and Destruction. And Hands of Death and Destruction is, he, he's a lovely guy. <laughs> People love him. And um, after, after like a cascading series of terrible things he does, Patients want photos with them and selfies with his arm around them and beloved. <laughs> the other guy's called the Raptor. And the Raptor is technically brilliant, does amazing work and produces the best outcome for that patient. Mm. But nobody, nobody, they hate him. Mm. You know, he's terrifying. Um, so who is the arbiter, I guess? Mm. I'm not answering your question in any way, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great anecdote. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and I've just come off two weeks of cardiothoracic surgery, so I yeah. recognise some of those attributes. <laughs> but you did say that Elizabeth was maybe not based on someone, but that someone inspired mm. you to write that character, and you described this in an interview and said, a person without a filter who has survived, not to say thrived, in her field, um, had a deep connection and obsession with helping patients, but it, when, it came, when it came to colleagues, had a complete inability to suffer any kind of fools or politics. Who was that? Um, <laughs> okay, I'm just testing the politics in my mind. Um, yeah, I'm just going to say it. So her name, um, her name, I want she, the character's not based on her, so don't go thinking, like, if I find this person, that's Elizabeth Taylor, because she's not a surgeon, but she's deeply inspiring to me. Her name is Mary Seddon. And um, her nickname, and this is well known, I've written about this, her nickname was Scary Mary. And um, Mary Seddon is actually um, a phenomenal person who was a uh, practicing doctor. Um, she became pregnant with her daughter. She was coming into winter at the hospital where everything goes haywire and goes crazy. And, um, and she was like, okay, so I can't do, I can't look after patients and do my baby daughter. So what am I going to do? What does Mary Seddon do? She goes to Harvard and gets a master's in public health. Uh, this is the kind of person she is. Um, but I also saw her like, dealing with like, senior men, senior older men. And, um, and I, I could sometimes watch her, because I deeply admired her already, but I'd be watching her and be going, like, why, don't, oh, you know, why don't you just say yes now and again? <laughs> and she won't, and she doesn't, and that's the good thing about her. But there is in our in the system of medicine, and uh, you know, women have to work much harder. And you get that sense with Elizabeth because she's fighting the whole way. You know, even when there are no enemies, she's fighting constantly, and then also insisting that she's not affected by the death of this patient, and insisting, insisting until everything falls apart. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, I'm also interested, Eileen, just mm. to think about um, the way that you present the hospital staff's response mm. to this patient. So there's a patient who presents repeatedly to ED over mm. the course of this novel um, with dr drug addiction yeah. issues. Yeah. Um, and it feels very calculated the way that you show the health mm. professional's response to this person versus mm. their response yes. to their colleague. Yeah. yeah, it actually wasn't intentional at the time. I was sort of... But it, but I think often there's this unconscious thing that's going on because later on you think, oh, yeah, that, that works out. So, so yeah, this, this lady keeps coming in. She's really challenging. She's based on a few patients I've had in my time who they kind of come in to get help, but they're fighting you the whole way. And, and so she's got um, infection and blood clots in her leg because she's been injecting into her femoral vein. Um, and, you know, and they're kind of thinking, oh, God, it's that druggy again, you know. And, but at the same time... Um, you know, there's this anaesthetic registrar shooting up drugs. And so, um, you know, what's the difference between these people? Mm. And, um, yeah. And there's no, you don't resolve that for them either because, no. um, you know, as this problem with the anaesthetic fellow yep. escalates, this woman keeps coming in and they're no more sympathetic to her. No, that's right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think... You know, your, your observations on the drinking culture in medicine, I mean, that mm. wasn't the focus of it, no. but you do skirt around that, yep. and that's definitely a thing. Yep. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. And, and I think, um, I mean, yeah, we, I, went, I was in Dunedin, and I, I went through two degrees because I, I didn't get into med school the first time, so I did a degree, and, um, and there was a lot of drinking going on in my first year hostel. But, yeah, no, um, I think some of it is um, that med students 
as with other areas, but are working very, very hard. And, and they give up a lot of their social lives at certain points um, around exam time, as I'm sure you know. Um, once you become a junior doctor, then you might want to specialise, then you give up a whole bunch of social life again and, and family life. Um, and you're coming home from work and you're studying really hard. So when you do get loose, let loose, then um, get loose. often they're, they're, they're like, OK, let's go and party. Great. And so um, it's kind of the, the work hard, play hard thing. It's not necessarily healthy. And I think some people start to use it as a crutch. So some people mm. will leave it. Once they've sort of grown through that, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't really want to do that anymore. But there, there's other people where um, their addictive personalities may start to come mm. through or they may be self-medicating with stress and things. And it is that sense of pace in medicine, isn't it? That there's yeah. never enough time. There's, there's you know, no, you're, that's you're right. rushing through everything onto the next thing, which yep. leaves you really exposed yep. and vulnerable. That's right. Yeah. Um, and the, I mean, there's there's such good data to support that. Mm. Like, I've seen a graph of um, a neonatal ICU bed occupancy, and it's just the most terrifying graph because it's like it's got the ideal as, as a flat number. Mm. It's the maximum, absolute maximum that you can have occupancy of beds. Mm. You know, there's something like 18 beds. It's up here. So there's black line, red line. And the actual occupancy is going like this. And it's, mm. going, it's sitting right above maximum mm. all the time. Yeah. And that's just one little tiny piece of our system. Yeah, well, you do that all winter. You know, yeah. you sort mm. of mostly have... 120% you, and you Pretty think, much, How yeah. can you be at 120%? Exactly, mm. exactly. So... I want to talk about power. So both of you reference power. So Rory says in, in one of the early parts of your novel that he feels powerful, omnipotent, delivering mm. an epidural. Mm. Um, and then on the other hand, you have Elizabeth, who's this very powerful clinical leader, mm. um, but fighting all the time to retain that. And that's mm. the thing. And, you know, there is this hierarchy and that you're climbing towards it, but it's mm. never, you know, it's not st static or stable, is it? That's right. And it informs everything in the, in the health system. How healthy is that? Yeah, no, I, I think there's a sense of, um, yes, you, you've got you've climbed really hard to get there. When things go right, they go really right. But you um, sometimes there's that, especially when people are very busy all the time, that I'm only one step away from doing something terrible. Um, or, or I'm in his case, I'm so sleep-deprived I might miss something mm. or I just um, have got too many patients to deal with at once. You know, at the start of the book, his pager keeps going off and going off. He's getting phone calls. He knows he's got three epidurals lined up. Mm. So, so he, he's just constantly on, teetering on that edge. But when things go really right, it's, yeah, that's, that's great. I'm powerful. I'm good. I did something good. The patients um, liked what they had and mm. um, pain relief. <laughs> yeah. Do you think non-medical non people concerned when they read these things? Because I read it and it felt familiar, but... Yeah, yeah I, I guess they, they could be. Um, I think... Um, from our point of view, it's all an element of risk, isn't it? So, so in my day-to-day -day job, it's very, very, very busy. Mm. But most of what I'm doing, if I make, um, if I made a minor mistake, it really wouldn't matter. You know, it would have to be quite a major thing. Um, so, I don't know if I'm answering your question very well here. Um, I guess I just wanted to show a whole range of things that can mm. happen, um, and but things go wrong. Sometimes, but it's not always the doctor's fault, and that's where the grey area is. Mm. Sometimes something is just going to go wrong. Um, and I remember a patient had died last year in our service, and um, and they were young, and it was terrible. But when I looked through what had gone on, I thought this death was not preventable. Yeah, this the, the disease killed the patient. Mm. So, and I think I mean one, something that Elizabeth Knox said in the previous session mm. was around. Um, you rewrite these things, you're not necessarily endorsing them. But, no, no, you know, of course you, not. It, it allows you to sort of access that, that, yep. that grey space. Yep. 
one of the other things that's um, not talked about much but absolutely goes on is the sexual power dynamics in medicine. And so you both have relationships that are sort of inter-hierarchical. Um, and I was telling you both that we signed this declaration at med school that we don't, we're not going to do anything unprofessional <laughs> yeah. as med students, yeah. which, you know, given yeah. the nature of the environment is, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a little bit unrealistic, right? Well, I think I think it is because these these are people who've just graduated medical school. They're you know in their twenties. Well, Rory's just hit thirty. Where else are you going to meet your future partner? But especially when you don't really get to leave the hospital very much. So it, I think it depends on the degree of power imbalance. There's not mm -hmm. a huge one between Rory and Jody. They're only really they're still both junior doctors really. Mm -hmm. But if the consultant had been sort of flirting with Jody and coming on to her, that's a huge power imbalance. And I mm -hmm. think that's and so you've got all the shades of grey in there. Mm. as well. Those shades yes. of grey, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, there's a different, there's an interprofessional relationship in your novel. Yeah, um, I, I think there, I kind of added a, the complicated, she's having, she's having a relationship with a nurse and um, she's a senior nurse and she's a nurse she trusts and they like to work together and um, they kind of, um, they, they have this strong feelings for each other and kind of comfort with each other but um, I think the book was sort of about whether, whether Elizabeth, given certain circumstances, would take or leave this person to protect herself and to protect her career. And I think there's, you know, there's a very common thing about um, male surgeons and female nurses and who survives out of that becoming public, I think mm. you know. Um, and I, I thought, you know, maybe I'll, I'll tease this out in, in this little context. And, yeah, again, I was not interested in writing a, you know, a horrible story about an alpha male surgeon, you know, prowling. It's been done. Eileen, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you seem to be able to pick and choose the genre yep. and mode of delivery for stories. Yep. Um, do you start out knowing which one it's going to be or do you just pick the mode that's going to suit that story? Yeah, I, I knew this was more targeted at the adult population, but because it's about, you know, although they're younger, I mean, one's 30, but the other mm. one's 24, but the, the topics I was tackling were really quite pretty adult, heavy. I thought. Yeah, they're yeah. Pretty, pretty heavy, and and so your style adjusts to that, whereas if I write for young adults, there's, um, I don't like writing slow-paced stories anyway, but they're, they're a lot faster-paced, and um, and, you, and you do tackle heavy topics for young adults, but this definitely felt like it was in the adult space. Yes, no, you're 100% right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you do, and I think yeah. it was um, Catherine Wolfe at the spin-off, who said that you, you do lean into the taboo. You know, you've written... Yeah, I, I, was, I just get bored otherwise. I, I sort of think, oh, I need to pick something that I think I might like to read about myself mm. and something tricky. I don't want easy answers. And then I want, I want the reader to say what, you know, make them think about it um, and not have a right or wrong answer at mm. the end of the book, really, necessarily. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Carl? You're committed to the novel. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's really awful because everything I kind of do is I, I kind of think about I, sh I should write a I should write a poem, <laughs> I should write a play, I should show that I can do other stuff, but um, it always ends up becoming subsumed by the monster that is the novel, you know, because the novel can can hold anything. Um, that being said, um, you know, I think the time. Maybe Elizabeth Knox sort of presents an exception to this, but the, the time for me anyway of like the big baggy Pinchonian novel was very firmly in the past. And, mm -hmm. it, and I thought, you know, with this book, given, given what we 
have on offer on, on our television. You know, the, the amount, the wealth of high-quality, amazing stuff. Maybe we're going to a desert in, in the near future post-COVID, but, um, you know, it's like, what do you write that people actually want to read these days? You know, how do you access the central nervous system mm. of people and use those powers that the written word has? And for me, it was, okay, that's, that's short and that's simple and that's um, refined and pared down and really, really super trusting in your reader. And, you know, I, in the past, I'm, style has been very rococo and kind of elaborate and um, I was like, I got, I got very tired of myself. Mm. Very ready for <laughs> something a bit simpler. Well, it's a lot like the, I read The Lazy Boys um, in preparation for this and that it's a similar sharpness to it. Yeah. And likability doesn't seem to be um, like a primary concern for you when not, you're creating characters. Not a big emphasis. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, it, on just talking about style with that book, so I wrote that, so I'm writing about very stultified young white men in the South Island who communicate in a series of, like, sexist codes with each other. Um, and in monosyllables and in single words standing in for other words, like they have a really refined set of codes they speak within. Um, but my character, when I wrote it, his brain behind all this, you know, monosyllables is going at a thousand miles an hour. And this is what I think we forget when we're dealing with teenage mm-hmm. boys and probably teenage girls, but that wasn't the emphasis here, is that they're... Their brains and their hormones are going zhun, zhun. They're doing all this complex negotiation and then they'll produce a syllable for you. <laughs> and, and so his brain, he's, he's squirting all this stuff out, as it were, on the, on the page. And then, so I wrote that and um, a publisher went, ah, yeah, no, it's interesting. Perhaps you might want to refine or, you know. And I was in Japan and I, I went, ah, oh, this is going to be published I need to turn it into a brutal, minimalist novel. And I completely rewrote it where every sentence was like three words long. Mm. And it was like, jujun, 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 and I killed it. Absolutely killed it dead. It's remarkably prescient, though, because I was surprised how long ago it was written because all of, these, all of this stuff is so relevant now still. Mm. Young men and male behaviour. Roast busters. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a sickness in, in our country that is taking a long time to heal. Mm. I wanted to talk to you both about the, the, the sense of place because you, you could have had fictional hospitals, but you had sort of fictional mm. versions of hospitals that exist. Mm. Mm. Um, and my observation is that hospitals have personalities and character, and so was that deliberate? Yeah, um, I really wanted... I, I need When I have a setting, I need to have been there usually. Um, I feel like otherwise I'm going to get moving around the place, I'm going to just get it wrong. Mm. And so although I hadn't worked at Nelson Hospital for quite a long time, I... I had a pretty good sense of the layout of it um, and, and what it's like to work in a peripheral hospital. There, there is a different culture in a peripheral mm. hospital from a larger hospital, and it is less hierarchical. Um, so, and, and just, I quite like beautiful sort of settings. You know, I mm. could have them going out tramping and things and, and know what that was like. I'm often still going on Google Maps and things and looking things up to remind myself. Um, Mm. But, yeah, I wanted to get that right. Um, And I try not to have it where I am working because people will start to think you're talking about your actual... Well, they already think that anyway. Well, they do. um, So I say, no, this is not me. This is not my autobiographical story in any way. So I do try and distance myself. But at the same time, I I had worked there before. Mm. 
Did you get in trouble? No, no one's got me. In, not yet. <laughs> so, someone did say, oh, um, the name of one of the surgeons, they've got the same initials. And I went, oh, that's a Freudian slip. I totally didn't mean that. <laughs> um, I did use some nicknames for my characters that one of the physicians had called a couple of junior doctors in our year, but that was not a big deal in it. Yeah, you've got some lovely archetypes in there. There's the, what's the ortho, yeah. orthopaedic guy. Yeah, he's God's kind gift. of an amalgamation yeah. of a few characters I've come across. So, um, yeah. 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 And Wellington, I mean, obviously. Yeah, um, well, I, every book I've written has been away from the place mm-hmm. and, and I, I had so many limitations, I thought I want to write where I am and see, see what it's like. And, you know, a book needs a setting and I really didn't want to write, um, you know, trying to invent, I, it seemed contrived. It's really hard. Yeah. And it seemed contrived, you know, like yeah. it would be, like yeah. as a reader I would come to that and go, what are you hiding? yeah. What yeah. are you hiding from me? Yeah, what about and, Elizabeth Knox creating whole worlds, imagine? Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, I, I think back to that West Wing episode where they had um, a fake Middle Eastern country <laughs> called Kumar. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's always, to me, been the archetype of how to really mess it up. It's like you <laughs> yeah. just, you can't, you can't mess, you change your genre. Well, you, you can do it. I mean, Charlotte Grimshaw made up a fictional place on the North Shore, I think, for, mm. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. And she did that really well, but I felt like I couldn't do that. I'm writing yeah. realism, I, Rule I need a setting. Rule is kind of made to be broken, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, just do it properly, yeah. And how much fact is in, you know, because the, these, yeah. these are real stories that are, fiction, yeah. you know, they're yeah. real fictional stories, I yeah. guess. Yeah, there's no, there's no actual patient in there that I've come across. There's an amalgamation of experiences, you mm. know, of you know, obviously come across patients who've got cancer, um, who've, who've got fluid in their stomachs from cancer, mm. young people with that, but it's never a character. I wouldn't do that. Um, in terms of the addiction and the propofol, I've never personally come across anyone. Mm. But I um, took it and went out for coffee with an anaesthetic colleague and I quizzed her about what I was quizzing. It's such dodgy questions when you're an author. I was like, how easy is it to get morphine from nothing? Because <laughs> I, I said, when I'm on the ward, there's no way I could go and get it. Two, two nurses have to unlock even the controlled mm. drug scripts. You know, I can't go near it. And she said, oh, not morphine, but propofol's been an issue in the last few years. And I went, why would anyone want to abuse mm. propofol? So propofol is the white drug that killed Michael Jackson because he just wanted to go to sleep. Um, and so basically, my memory from my anaesthetics run three months of it was you would start injecting it into the patient and you go count backwards from 10 and you go good night because they get to about five mm. um, and, the, and then, then we would keep them under with gas. I thought, well, what, what's the fun in that? Like injecting that and going to sleep. Um, and that's when I did the research and found out that it's often people with post-traumatic stress disorder, etc. So that's, that's how that all sort of fed into the story. So I am, And then I looked up lots of blogs and um, about people who had... Your abuse. Google search. Not their personal, but oh, my Google searches are terrible. Um, so, you know, um, and so I Googled it and I found a story of one person who had a big bruise in the middle of his forehead and that's because he put in his IV and he'd inject himself with propofol and he'd go donk on the desk. And he'd wake up and he'd inject himself again and donk on the desk. Um, and so, I, yeah, it's quite shocking. I, I just mm. thought, what a deadly drug to be playing around with. 45% mortality rate. Yeah. You know? but, but then I've started getting stories coming. People are messaging me going, oh, I know someone who died of a propofol overdose about 10 years ago. She's really traumatized by it. She mm. didn't know. Mm. She didn't know that they were experimenting with that stuff. So it's scary. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. What about you, Carl? How much fact? How much fiction? Um, it... For the operation that begins the book, which is where the, the titular mistake happens, that's two HDC cases, yeah. uh, Health and Disability Commissioner cases, um, which are like Rashomon stories. You know, every every 
specialty has a different, the nurse has a different version from the doctor mm. of what went on, the timing is different. Um, so I combined those two. Um, there's a mistake and there's an outcome, and I combined those two. And the rest of it is, you know, um, extension of my obsessions, my feelings, my observations of the world and twist of imagination. Mm. Yeah. What's it like? I mean, it's funny when you talk about observing doctors because I remember being introduced to this surgeon, this professor of surgery um, in theatre one day and one of the registrars said, oh, yeah, this is Emma and she's a writer. And he said, don't write about me. <laughs> yeah, I know, Which immediately you, made me yeah. want to you write about You discriminated against, I reckon. It's just um, like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And are there some that invite you in and some that are really cautious about, you know, are you going to write about them? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I try and keep the world separate. Yeah, I do too, yeah. I don't, I don't tell them I'm a writer unless they come along and say, I saw you in The Listener, and then they want to talk about it and chat about it. No, There's surprisingly a little crossover, isn't there? There's I've... not a lot, but, um, yeah, yeah probably, probably each week now, though, I have patients coming along going, oh, yeah, I saw the blah, blah, you know. Mm. Um, but, no, only one person has said, well, I think you must be daydreaming when you were meant to be seeing me in clinic about your books, and I was like... <laughs> So if I played rugby, I probably wouldn't have had that comment. I was quite mm. insulted by that. <laughs> didn't have time to daydream. <laughs> you are extraordinarily prolific, though, and, um, and I keep quoting to everyone this three months to write a book thing, which is... Well, that's only two of them. It's usually six months. Nausea. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's interesting because you... I'm feeling a horrible sinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But how do you, because you write about characters that, you know, you don't yeah. have these, the lived experience of the characters you've talked about, yeah. incest, and, you know, yeah. you had a, um, yeah. Yeah. The, there's a bisexual relationship. Yeah, yeah. 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 And um, so how do you get that accuracy when you're yeah. Yeah, I think, so um, I think I think it all starts with the character. So I, I'm not a plotter. So um, I, I come out, I stream up strong characters um, and then I will put them in situations. In this instance, I did want to talk about the addiction, so, so that did have that theme. With the, the gay young adult characters that I came about with their characters first, I had a really quirky guy, and he, he's kind of a little bit on the spectrum, etc. dreamed up the other character, and then I had to give them a plot. Um, but, but for me, if I'm writing about relationships, well, love is universal. So um, as a female, I, I'm attracted to males because I'm straight. So I could totally see how these guys could fall for each other because I'm attracted to males. <laughs> I might have trouble writing about lesbians. Um, but I did do research for that. You know, I've, I mean, obviously, I've um, you know, got gay friends in my life. I, I rang sexual health services. I spoke mm-hmm. to a worker who works with gay teens or and bisexual L. GQBTI, um, and talked about bullying in schools, mm-hmm. how prevalent is it now, and he talked about that. So, so I do still do some research um, for all of my books, yeah. um, but, but I'm a little bit obsessive with the writing because I love it so much, so, and, I, and I've got a real, I like to finish things. So if I start something, I'm really scared I might not finish it, so every day I have to be plugging away, but it's not work, it's just fun. But actually, practically, when do you do it? Because you're a yeah. consultant. So, yeah, I'm a consultant. <laughs> so so I, I go to work and I'll do anywhere between nine and ten hours, and then I'll come home. And if I'm on call, it's usually just phone calls. But I'll um, probably sit down at about seven o'clock because we have early dinner at our house. I might write for an hour or so. I might write for two. I might only write for half an hour. Um, if I wake up in the morning and I'm really brimming with ideas, I've got Dropbox on my phone, and so that links with my computer. I can just start adding to that I'm on, when I'm on the plane. Um, it's all the little gaps in time <laughs> that, yeah. that I use, commuting and things like that. I, I'm carrying it around in my head. So if, when I'm about to fall asleep at night, I'll be thinking about the characters. 
This sounds really obsessive. It is. When, but but it's fun. It's it's, it's kind of, you know. And when I wake up in the morning, they'll be in my head. I'm thinking about where they're going next. So um, I think that's why I write so fast because it's all happening. Yeah. Impulsive. Yeah. And and you're just the same, Carl. Uh, well, I know I'm not a consultant in hematology. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really know how to follow that up. That's, um, that's quite amazing. No, I'm, I'm like. Do you a, work ten hours and then go home and? No, ride. I don't. I don't. Um, she has two children as well. Um, no, I, I very much. It's always been about. I need to organise my life so that I have these big slots of time where I can do work. I mean, Pip was talking earlier today about doing writing. 15 minutes a day, and I'm like... <laughs> I could not write 500 words in 15 minutes. That's, that's astonishing. I, yeah, I couldn't... That was amazing. But is, I'm starting to think now, is that the discipline for me in my future life? And I'm like, oh, come on. You know, does it have to be? That's so hard. When you have kids, it does. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, yeah. I'm just enormously impressed. But, you know, everybody has their own, their own, I, their own way of approaching and doing stuff. I tend to, like do something different and, and be in the world and live in the world and do, you know, make my way however and then go like, okay, this is enough of the world and I need to go and be, you know, my true self. But you've talked about it, so there's been periods of your life where you've just written and then you've worked and then you're trying, trying to do both. Is there an optimal for you? Well, um, yeah, this is really interesting because this kind of came up in the earliest session as well. It's like the, the space that you're in and the time that you have to some extent, has a weird interrelationship with the work you produce. Mm. It's not like one determines mm. the other. Um, so uh, when I left Japan, I was doing the Masters. I had, you had all the time. Mm. You said, go and write, please. And so for two and a half years, I wrote a big, long, baggy thing. And it yeah, was, you know, yeah, I kind of yeah. went mental as I yeah. wrote it. <laughs> yeah. you know? and it I find the more way. time I have, the worse it is in terms of That creativity. may well have been the case for me. Yeah. <laughs> It's like you've got eight hours to study for this exam or you've got two. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Might have done with the Some good retrospective learning. <laughs> but with this one, I, I thought, okay, I've got limited time, but I've always wanted to do a short, pared-back thing. Mm. So now's the moment. Imperfect, because that's surgical. Mm. Yes, true. Yeah. Um, we'll go to questions shortly. So if we've, we've got mics to circulate, if anyone's got some questions. Um, but I just wanted to talk to you. I mean, this is, um, you know the first kind of festival that we've all able to... We've been trying to get together, the three of us, mm. <laughs> um, and everything's been cancelled because of COVID, and it's just mm. been so nice to be here with everyone. What have you been your highlights of, of this festival? My highlights? Um, I went to Bill Manhire's session yesterday with John Campbell, and I just loved every single minute of it, and I loved the reading of the poems, and I raced out ahead to buy his book because I knew they'd sell out, and they did. <laughs> so that was great. And um, the great word debate last night, it's great. Carl's session with Pip Adam, mm. amazing. And Elizabeth Knox's session just prior yeah, to this was, was, was magical. magical. And they're all wonderful, wonderful books and mm. all so diverse. Mm. Yeah. yeah, actually, yeah. the same for me. I mean, Pip's session, Bill's session, Elizabeth's session. But also, um, Eileen and I had dinner last night. We just Because we sort of have a, like a professional Crossover, connection yeah. and stuff. And yeah. we're just talking about, you know, quality stuff. And, and I was just like, this is it's a book festival. This is great. Yeah, no, just looking up and down your Regent Street and just mm. seeing all the writers hanging out in yeah. the bars mm. and you felt like you're in 1920s America. You're like, Fitzgerald's going to walk past yeah, you. Yeah. Gonna, you know. Some yeah. of us should have gone home a bit earlier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the whiskey bar, yeah. 
it was interesting when you said, Carl, you're talking about, you know, the safety community. I mean, yeah. what is that? <laughs> How do you mean? When you said oh, it's in safety circles. Um, so, so I, <laughs> I, advi- I advise for the Health and Disability Commission sometimes, and um, you were f- working for the Health, Safety and Quality can, Commission, Can right? you try and say it again? <laughs> <laughs> it has the worst name and nobody can ever remember. HSQC. Yeah. 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 Just... Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any questions? Go on. You know you want to. What are you both working on next? You've probably finished three books by the time we finish the session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I've got a fantasy trilogy coming out next year, Young Adult. Oh, so the first yeah. one's starting. There's another adult book coming out next year. So I've started on the next fantasy trilogy. That's what I'm working on at the moment. And editing these other books. Yeah. Yeah. So just half a dozen books for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not answering this. <laughs> <laughs> you can't really win. <laughs> It'll be high quality when it comes out. <laughs> That'll be your first fantasy. <laughs> My first, that's the yeah. first fantasy, yep. yeah. So I'm um, really excited about that. Are you allowed to tell us anything about it? Um, so it starts, now, this is like someone was talking yesterday. They went, I wrote this before COVID. So I wrote this before COVID. Um, so these characters end up with a mutated form of measles, um, called, and they call it M fever because vaccination rates have dropped off. So I actually did write it after the measles epidemics yeah. kind of thing. Um, but when when they, a few, probably 10% get encephalitis and a lot of them die, but the ones who survive have enhanced cognition. And then I've just taken it, gone a little bit crazy with it, really. And awesome. Yeah, it's lots and of thought, fun. why not just write three? Yeah, but, but actually I got up to about 30,000 words and then I thought, this is just crappy, this is horrible. And, and, but I send every chapter to my critique partner, Nod, who's sitting over here, um, who's also a writer, and we went out for lunch or breakfast. She was up in Auckland last October. I said, oh, I'm just giving up on that. She went, I would love to have read something like that. I went, mm. okay. So I sat down and finished the trilogy, basically. Um, that night. Over, well, not that <laughs> night. <laughs> yeah. So by May of this year, I'd finished the trilogy. Um, in Amazing. A great experience. And my, my son, I was having debate. He's 13 now. I said, I don't know if this needs to be two books or three. He went, definitely three. There's a whole symmetry with it, you know. So, And then I did a survey on Twitter, and lots of people said, no, it needs to be a trilogy. Yeah. So. I said I'd never write a trilogy. Here you are. Do your children test read your books? Do they? um, No, they don't test read them. My son has read a couple once they're in print. It's Mm. a little bit hard on the screen and then before it's gone through the proofing. But he read a trio of Sophie's and he gave it a four on Goodreads. (laughs) And I said... I thought you said you really liked it. And he goes, but my policy is never to give a five. Oh, my gosh. That sounds like some kind of you know, supervisor that I've had. Yeah. Critic. Yeah, and my daughter carries them around, and she's only six and a half, and she has them stacked up on her nightstand. She'll go, Mum, I'm reading pieces of you. And I hope you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. that. Any questions? Oh, yes. Yeah. Hi. I'm just trying to figure out how to word this question without it being too convoluted. Um, but you've both reflected, it seems, in your stories that there's a real, um, despite how uh, tough medical people can be, there's a real vulnerability there as well. And that often the mistakes that are made are often actually a lot coming from the system that we work mm-hmm. in rather than uh, individuals. And that the system often fails, can often fail the doctors. I'm quite curious as to how... Um, when we're talking about transparency, uh, especially, I guess, surgical transparency, that um, the, the way of doing that so that patients get the benefit of understanding a bit more about who they're going to see, 
mm. without turning it to this really complicated pointing the finger mm. at the doctors who are often already kind of right on that edge. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure Carl's got a really good answer too. And, I, and I, guess, I guess one thing about the transparency is it becomes quite hard because some surgeons take on the really risky, mm. hard operations. So their outcomes are actually going to be worse in, in some ways. They'll, some of those patients are going to have a higher mortality because that's the type of operation they do. So I think for the public to look in and go, oh, but that, that guy's stats look terrible. So, so I think it needs to be... I'm not saying there shouldn't be transparency. It really needs to be presented in a way that people can understand why these figures look the way they do and how do you compare apples and oranges. And I think that can be quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just sort of leading on from that is that there's um, really complicated methods of like risk adjustment yeah. that, which yeah. take into account people's, yeah. you know, um, smoking histories, et cetera, et cetera, and how you compare like an 80-year-old with a 20-year-old and things like that to see if the surgeon's performing the right way. But the, the key thing is even before that is like what's the outcome that you're measuring? Mm. And um, for everything that you do to a human body, that gets really compl complicated, right? So if you're doing what's called a cabbage, which is just a coronary artery bypass graft... Just... Well, but that that in a way is quite simple because you live or you die at the end of that operation and that's the outcome you want to measure but there are most other things the outcome is way more gray mm. and, and is it good is it bad um they didn't die that's not quite enough to say you know um, after this hip replacement, this person didn't die, therefore your surgeon is good. You know, you need something a bit more complicated. And with, like, a hip replacement, there, what else could you say? Um, it didn't get infected? Well, that's good, but, you know, pretty low bar. Um, did they start moving around quickly? You know, what other things contribute to that? So it gets really complicated and really messy. And then the, the flip side to that is you go and ask people, you ask New Zealanders, what do you want to know about your surgeon? And we did this. And this is where I, my brain starts kind of turning in wheels because I think there should be more transparency. But New Zealanders said, um, well, I want to know that I'm going to have good parking. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I want to feel compassion and yeah. cared for, you know. I want hands of death and destruction, basically. <laughs> um, and... They did say, I want the likelihood of a good outcome for someone like me. And that's where my kind of ears pricked up. Um, but, and then what I think about that is that how long have we been indoctrinated in our system where we accept a patriarchal system that does things to us and we're grateful for it? You know, are we, are we captured? It's quite a Kiwi culture too, though. I think if you went to the States, people are a lot more... I don't want to use the word demanding, but they, they want to know a lot more. They, they, they're a lot more critical. Um, whereas in, for a Kiwi to be like that is less common. And it's, it's, and it's contract, actually, it's, it? a social, it's our social, it's, it's why we've done quite well with COVID because we went, most of us went, I'll do what the government told me. Mm. You know, whereas in some countries they went, my individual rights have been stromped on and I can't yeah, get a haircut. So, well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so I, th I think there's that. But it's, um, yeah, it is interesting if you ask patients what they want um, yeah, they do want compassion, you know. But, but for me, I'd say, well, 
I don't, I don't care if the surgeon isn't that nice. I want him to be good and to fix my knee. Yeah. <laughs> so. And there's other things like patients, people, assume that doctors are doing stuff that they may not necessarily be doing. Mm. So there was, uh, we did some stuff around um, uh, a registry, and a registry keeps all this data. It's basically a comprehensive audit of how things go. And um, every New Zealand patient assumed that that data was being distributed to people mm. so that they could improve their practice and align with the best possible person in the hospital. That's not happening. But also it's difficult because, you know, by making this data available, but there's no choice. You still have to go to the doctor that's in your DHB. You know, you can't then go and pick the best one who happens to be in Christchurch and leave them in Auckland. So True, actually. you're not yeah. introducing that concept of choice. You're just letting people know. Yeah. yeah. And is that the best way to drive those surgeons mm. or doctors to get better? Mm. Or is there a better, better mode? I think one of the biggest problems, sorry, I won't go on about this, <laughs> but one of the biggest problems behind all this is what the original thing that drove all this happened in the 1990s, and it was heart surgery. It was coronary artery bypass grafting, and after they made the individual surgeons known in New York State, mortality went down 43%. So, the, you know, you may be aware, but in medicine and surgery... Nothing changes anything by 43% unless mm. it's a statistical anomaly or small numbers. Mm. Yeah. And it was gigantic, so there have been 70,000 studies since. Wow. Mm. Um, if we've got one last question. <laughs> Hi. I'm just curious if things don't go... This in the, in the medical profession things don't go right, and that's um, debatable, I suppose, because mm. grey areas. Mm. How big the responsibility, how big does it weigh on you about that, and how long does that last so mm. that in six years' time or seven years' mm. time can you still think, mm. pull that yep. back and say... I remember so-and-so, uh, yeah. I remember Jack. No, no, it does. Our, our practice is shaped by those events. So sometimes you'll say, why does that particular physician always want a chest X-ray on everyone who comes in the door? Mm. And it's because they had the one patient where they didn't pick up the aortic dissection with their atypical pain in their jaw. That shouldn't really have been an aortic dissection. So, so, so you do, if there's something quite bad or unexpected sometimes happens, it, can shape, it shapes your mm. practice and you absolutely remember those cases. And, and they're not always necessarily, again, anyone's fault. And we try to have no fault. When something happens, there's a whole, um, there's a whole systems response that goes up and, and we'll all be asked to supply reports at all stages. And no one's trying to point the finger at anyone. We just say, can you honestly tell us what happened? And I find that really, really interesting. And especially when I am advising from a, from the, for the health and disabilities, which is always not to do with my own colleagues. It's always, it has to be... Um, no conflict of interest. And it's a real detective story. You're like, what happened here? Mm. But yeah, you definitely will remember that. And mm. rightly or wrongly, it can make you do things that are slightly oddball sometimes, or it can change things for the better. You can say, this should not have happened. This should always happen from now on. And, and hospitals will change their um, systems mm. to adjust. And that's good. That is healthy. Rather than just blaming one person and saying, well, they're, they're really bad and mm. they're not going getting on the training scheme. And, you know... Yeah. 
No, it, it, it does weigh on you. you. You try not to let it weigh on you too much, um, but, but it does, and especially if um, patients and their families have a very emotional response to something that happens, and sometimes that may have been a death, no, it gets at you, it does. And so, um, and that's where we need to have, um, to be able to debrief to each other um, and to, um, to, to be able to talk to someone about that and have mentors, etc. because you can't go home and talk to your friends about that. Mm. But it can really get at you. So, so it, and that's one of the ways of the things that can feed into burnout in medicine. Mm. We have to look after each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you, everyone, for being with us. And just um, wanted to, to mahi to the organisers. You've done a remarkable job putting together a beautiful festival um, in really uneasy times. And I don't even want to think about the contingency plans you must have had in place just in case. <laughs> so thank you all. And one last round of applause. <laughs>